Welcome to another episode of the DBSA podcast series. Today's episode features young adult council member Olivia and DBSA peer Johnny discussing self-advocacy in the workplace. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Olivia and I'm a member of DBSA's Young Adult Council. We're a group of 18 to 30 year olds that focuses on big transitions, things like entering the workforce or college, moving relationships, and a lot more. A lot of times the impact of work is easy to underestimate. On paper, it's 40 hours a week, but in reality, it's a lot more. You have to factor in your commute time, the time it takes you to get ready, adjusting your sleep schedule, and unfortunately, sometimes thinking about stress from work in your off hours. So today I'm going to be talking to Johnny about his experience entering the workforce. And Johnny, before we get into the specifics of your experience, what was your job search like, that first initial search? Did you prioritize mental health or even think of it at all during mm -hmm. that search? Mm -hmm. I think that's a great first question, Olivia. Um, and truthfully, um, my job search, um, which kicked off um, probably this was in 2013. So we're eight years out from that. Um, and candidly, mental health was not a component of what I was looking for. Um, and I think it says a lot about um, how much we have advanced the conversation um, in the last eight years, um, you know, which is close to a decade, in the sense that, you know, here, you and I are sitting here today doing this podcast, and we're able to have this conversation about mental health in the workplace. Um, it felt like something that wasn't talked about nearly a decade ago. And because it wasn't talked about nearly a decade ago, it wasn't something I was thinking about nearly a decade ago. Um, so in 2013, uh, I had graduated college and the next step um, based on, you know, how we construct Western society was to get a job and to get a job that was more or less aligned with my major I went to Indiana University, studied public affairs with a focus in nonprofit management, and so knew I wanted to go into the mission-driven sector. And that was that. And so a month before graduation, got a good lead, was for an organization in the city of Chicago. They operate as a community development finance organization, which essentially means they are a mission-driven lender. They help nonprofits finance their capital needs, and they also did uh, real estate um, consulting and services as well. So plugged into an institution that was progressively minded, knew they were in the nonprofit space, so it felt like a good fit. And that more or less kind of checked my boxes. But in terms of, you know, thinking about lifestyle, my health, my mental health, none of that really factored, factored into my decision making process. And you touched on this briefly, you focused on nonprofits in your undergraduate years. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us have this idealized vision of what that means in practice for work. You know, we're going to be people focused instead of corporation and profit driven. But once you finally got into that first position, did your experience kind of go against that preconceived idea? 100%. I think I learned very quickly, Olivia, um, there's how organizations present themselves on the outside. 
and there's what the organizations seek to do in terms of mission. And then there's how the organization operates on the inside. And the exterior of institutions doesn't always match the interior of institutions. And I think that was something I just took for granted at the time. Um, like you said, as you were setting up this question, um, you know, what, why I gravitated towards the nonprofit sector is because I knew at an essence level as a part of my being that I wanted my work to be connected to making a difference in my community. I wanted my work to be connected to making a difference in society at large. And the assumption there is, is that a group of people who are dedicated towards doing that are naturally and just intuitively going to be good about the people-centric stuff, being naturally supportive of someone's mental health, being naturally supportive of someone's disability. And what I quickly learned is that was not the case. Um, this, the organization I was working for um, was um, very ambitious um, and they set a high standard, um, which is great. And I got to work with some uh, incredible individuals with exceptional pedigree. But in terms of the corporate culture that existed there, especially as it related to individuals who have a health disability, and even more specifically, a mental health disability, there was almost no literacy there in terms of how to create a supportive environment to do that. And that came to me as a shock. Um, but just sharing a little bit about my own personal story, you know, the, the timing, it, it, it really was a perfect storm. Um, so I did, you know, step into this new job from a place where I felt that I was in a relatively stable place in terms of mental health. And then about two to three months into this new job, I had a full-blown mental health crisis. And going through a full-blown mental health crisis um, and living and breathing that really changed my perspective on how a lot of organizations, whether they're for-profit or nonprofit, um, in our society, in our culture, just don't have the infrastructure in place to fully address or fully support. And I shouldn't even say fully. In some, in some cases, to support at all um, someone who is going through a, a significant mental health challenge. And so you said, you know, this, this organization came across as very people-centric in the public eye, mm -hmm. but you quickly learned that wasn't the case. Did you learn that a couple months in when you had that crisis, or did you have signs of that even earlier? It all happened so fast. Um, that I think I didn't even, because if you're, you know, when you're 22 years old and you're stepping into a new company, you're just a sponge, right? This is your first real world job experience. And so, you know, everything is just a whirlwind, right? You're learning what it's like to operate in a professional environment. You're learning what it's like to work with people who are three to four decades older than you. Um, there's just a, a, a huge gap. Uh, in terms of experience and capacity and capability. And so two months, you know, for a first job is nothing. It's, it's a blink of the eye. And so it's hard enough not having a mental health crisis, not having a physical health crisis. 
um, getting acclimated to the real working world. And then to have that kind of sneak up on me all of a sudden, two months into that experience, I didn't have time to really assess what the organization was like before. It, it is all blended together in, in, in my memory and experience of that moment in time. I, um, just on my personal side, I recently graduated back in May of 2020. And so I, I'm at that spot where you're mentioning, you know, you're, you're still kind of just absorbing everything and getting a feel for the company. So at that time for you, did you have the thought at all of maybe this will pass? Maybe this is just my experience or did you from the start realize it as a, a bigger societal problem? Yeah, I think initially, I mean, one, the crisis was so large. I was not thinking at those more, <laughs> at that more strategic level, right? I was in survival mode. And so my ability to properly and accurately assess my surroundings and whether or not I was in a safe place or whether or not I deserved a better place, it wasn't something I had the capacity to lend psychic energy to. It was, you got to survive. Um, and outside of work, that meant literally. So, you know, this mental health crisis involved severe depression and suicidal ideation. And so there was a component of it that was literally you have to survive and then you have to go into work and you have to survive in the work environment from a place of essentially hiding what is going on or feeling pressure to hide what is going on. And why do you feel pressure to hide what is going on? Because there was nothing in our culture at the time. And I, I don't, you know, I don't want to lay the, the blame or the criticism solely at the feet of the organization. This was, this was at the time, uh, an issue at large and continues to be, even though there's been some improvement, but because there's no culture around, or there wasn't a lot of culture around mental health in the workplace, I didn't have the tools to talk about it. HR didn't have the tools to talk about it. My supervisor didn't have the tools to talk about it. And so you're really just left operating on autopilot and not asking critical questions of where you're at, what you're doing, how do you get through this? What should you be doing? And that critical thought that is so important, I think, to navigating those experiences, it was just something that didn't come naturally to me at the time. And I think that says a lot about the culture that's instilled in us. And I think that says a lot about stigma um, because what was it? that was just naturally silencing my voice? What was it that was giving me hesitation to open up about having a mental health crisis in the workplace? And to your question around how did things feel immediately versus long-term over the years as I got better, and I could think more reflective and more critically about those experiences, you start connecting the dots and you start seeing um, that you know, if I was in an environment where there was less stigma, I would have been able to give voice to these experiences. Or you start to realize that, hey, if I had a different health condition, say I had a heart attack or I broke my arm, based on my experience of the workforce now, how would the workforce have responded if that type of incident were to arise? And you just start to understand at an intuitive level that it would have been different, right? Um, it wouldn't have been perfect, but there's just the, the mind is set apart from the rest of the body in a way 
that still presents challenges to people who have mental health crises. We are very good about addressing physical health crises. That doesn't mean we don't have room to improve, but if someone's diagnosed with cancer, someone's diagnosed with heart disease, someone's diagnosed with kidney disease, someone is in an accident, we just instinctually know as a society what should be done, right? What is expected from the society to help those people. With mental health, it's different. It's siloed away. Um, and that's because, I mean, the brain is, I think, highly correlated to someone's being, right? Their person, their soul. And so there's a value judgment that starts to creep in that, again, is rooted in stigma. And I think that's kind of my perspective on why we silo it away. But in no way, shape, or form does that distinction, does that mean that distinction is correct or the right thing to do? And Johnny, I kind of want to dive into this idea of an invisible stigma for mental health a little bit deeper. Yeah. I know a lot of people try to pass, you know, as you mentioned, you tried to hide it. Mm-hmm. And it's often up to people to self-disclose or their symptoms alert people that something's going on. Yeah but they might not know exactly why or understand why. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question for you is when you were in that work environment, did your, did your symptoms start to impact your impact your work in a way that your coworkers or supervisors were able to pick up on? I think that happened almost immediately. Um, Certainly as it relates to me recognizing it within myself. Right. I And I think what was hard for my coworkers is they didn't know Johnny Fiegel five months before, right? And because the mental health crisis transpired so immediately, you know, here's this new kid, 22 years old, who's just trying to learn his way, you know, they had no baseline, right? They couldn't compare who I was, you know, a year ago to who I was, you know, in front of them on that day in August, September of 2013. So, you know, some of that I think uh, can be relegated to stigma, but some of it I think has to do with the fact that they, they just didn't know me, right? They didn't know, you know, how to make that comparison. But as it relates to myself, it was almost immediate, you know? So I, I what sparked the crisis after years and years of mental health neglect just taking a step back in terms of sharing my story, diagnosed with Crohn's disease at age 15. It's a huge blow to my physical health, but it's also a huge blow to my mental health and struggled for years to get better. And by the time I stepped into my first job, I, I, was, I was in a much better place, but the legacy of chronic illness is related to Crohn's disease and the legacy of neglecting my mental health was still very much at play. And then two to three months into this job, I had the unexpected ending uh, of, of a really close relationship, of a romantic relationship. And that triggered a perfect storm of events. I then went into a full-blown mental health crisis, a downward spiral, and all of this was happening two months into a job. Um, and because of the unexpected nature of everything, my symptoms, you know, it, it was like it, it, it happened in the blink of an eye, right? And so one day I was probably passing, even though I had underlying mental health issues. And then the other day I was about as close to being dysfunctionally depressed and institutionalized as humanly possible. And so right away, those symptoms in the workplace looked like, you know, what you would see 
you know, in a brochure as it relates to depression, um, just feeling exhausted. Um, I did a podcast recently for DBSA um, where, you know, I talked about, you know, how depression was a very physical experience for me. And it literally felt like my brain and my body was on fire. And I think that was had to do with an interplay between the Crohn's disease, disease, which is an autoimmune disease that impacts the digestive system and what was going on in my brain. But I felt like I was inflammation personified. And you can only imagine how that would play out in the workplace, right? So trouble, not just trouble focusing, but a complete inability to focus, lack of critical thinking, there was times for probably over a year where I struggled to even think in complete sentences. <laughs> well, and you can imagine that trying to do that in the workplace would be a major problem. And what do you do if you're having immense challenges focusing, immense challenges articulating your thoughts, your feelings, your opinions on a topic? Well, then you start to turn inward, right? And so I became incredibly introverted. And when I think back on that experience, um, the way I describe it as, uh, you know, I essentially, I was a shell of my former self, like any semblance of confidence or spontaneity or can do spirit that I had before that it was gone. It was just completely gone. And I recognized that was happening at the time as symptoms that I was recognizing right away. I just had no idea how to get that back. And then from my coworkers perspective, they had no idea who I was. And so for all they knew is that I was just an extraordinarily introverted, closed off person who was overwhelmed in the workplace. And that's all they saw in me, right? They didn't see someone who was a shell of, of their former selves. They didn't see someone who was necessarily going through a major life event, a major disabling event because there was no baseline for them to compare it to. And you mentioned you went to Indiana University for school, correct? Yep. And so not only were you adjusting to this new job, but also to a new city. So did you have any relationships outside of that work environment that you could lean on at that time? Yeah. And I should clarify, Olivia. So I was born and raised in Oak Park. So I had good familiarity with Chicago. Oak Park is the first suburb west of the city. That said, one of the things that was happening, and your question alludes to this, is this immense change. So the immense change of graduating college, the immense change of being away for the first time in four years for an extended period of time from my friends in college, from my support network in college. And then what was happening at home was... The friends of mine who were my age, we were all getting our first-time jobs, and people were getting their first-time jobs across the country. And so summer quickly turned to fall, and it was probably one of the most abrupt transitions in my life, where I went from having, you know, what essentially was my support system and my friend group that I had built over the course of college, over four and a half years, just making a radical shift, right? people leaving, losing contact with people, all of that stuff. And so I was in a very isolated place. There was a handful at most of, of really close friends that I still had in the Chicagoland area that I could turn to. And they were wonderful and they were supportive, 
but I think that transition, right, of leaving college, stepping into a new environment, experiencing the huge loss of a support network, or at least a huge change in that support network, only exacerbated what I was going through. And so moving back to your work environment, what was the process like for that to come to an end and you to move on from that organization? Yeah, uh, the, the process was that the process was that two and a half years into this job, I was let go. And so there was not a proactive decision made on my part to leave for something better. In retrospect, as someone who has gone through a healing journey as it relates to mental health, as someone who has learned a thing or two about self-advocating, there were things that I should have done within the first six months of me being in that situation that may have helped, whether it was self-advocating in the work environment or saying, you know what, this isn't for me and I need to leave. I also wish, and this is a wish that I still had today, and we might have a question later on in the podcast that gets to this, but that we lived in a world and we experienced uh, a work culture kind of across the board that allowed people to treat their mental health challenges as if they were physical health challenges. And so I have little doubt, Olivia, that in that first six months during the acute crisis, I probably should have taken leave. And I probably shouldn't even say probably, that's what I needed to do for my mental health at that time. And that just wasn't afforded to me as an opportunity. It wasn't proactively recommended by the employer, nor in my mind did I know that that was something that I should be doing for myself. And now that you have that knowledge looking back, have you ever had to apply that to future jobs? Have you ever said, do you have any employee employee assistance programs or, hey, I need a mental health day. Has it ever come into play for you since then? Definitely. I think one of the biggest things in my current job that I've been able to do is to just be upfront about taking time for mental health. Um, There was uh, a period of time about two years ago where I started uh, a more experimental type treatment And experimental maybe isn't the right word um, because it's been in use um, for a long enough period of time that it's becoming more commonplace in terms of mental health treatment. But I made a decision to undergo TMS therapy, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, It's, you know, uh, a technique that uses a coil to stimulate the brain, not electric shock therapy, something much more Uh, much less invasive. But all of that is to say, and long story short, is I had to go to four to five appointments a week for that. And they were 30 minute sessions at the time. And so I had to build a work schedule around those treatments. And so, you know, went to my employer that I currently work at, was very honest about that. They were very supportive in that. And it felt good to one, be open about the fact that I needed mental health treatment and two, to have an employer that was, you know, fully supportive of that and said, Johnny, whatever you need to do, if you need to leave work a little early, come in a little late, do something during your lunch, do it. That's fine. And so that was a very affirming experience and what it's like to both self-advocate, Hey, I I need to do this. 
uh, it wasn't necessarily asking, hey, can I do this? It was, I need to do this for my health. Um, and then to have that be met with acceptance and warmth and understanding. But I will say, Olivia, one of the things that I've kind of toyed with in my head is this notion that, yes, I have been treated better in the work environment as it relates to my mental health, but I should not be the recipient of better treatment just because I'm in a better place, right? The system should not be set up that it works relatively okay for people who are relatively okay. The system should work great for everyone. And in particular, the system should work even better than great for people who are struggling the most. And right now we have a system that does not work much of all for people who are in a really bad place and it works okay for people who are kind of okay. And I guess that's another way of saying it works okay for people who are passively in a mentally stable place. And, and that's, that's a major issue for our society to grapple with. Yeah, you know, that's probably the major topic of this podcast is what is the answer to mental health in the workplace? Mm -hmm. And I think it, it falls both on the organization and the individual. Mm -hmm. But do you think there's something that organizations can do to better reach out to those workers, those employees, yep. when they're just, they're just getting by? You know, a lot of times if you're in that crisis state, it's hard to reach out and say, I need help. So what can employers do? I think the notion of mental health should be built into the DNA of organizations. Um, we have seen a big push as it works, as it relates to diversity and inclusion, um, which is a welcome change in corporate culture. Um, now we could do a whole podcast on the shortcomings of diversity and inclusion and all the work that still needs to be done on that front. But there was a movement, right, in the last 20 years to make that part and parcel of the hiring process, part and parcel of how people are treated in the workplace. And I think we really need to do the same with mental health. It should just be a given, right? It should be a given that an organization makes it a part of its values to be both welcoming and supportive of people who have mental health disabilities slash challenges. It should be proactively thought about at these organizations. It should be a given in terms of their suite of services that they do to support their employees internally from a human resources perspective. I think that would make a big difference that if you're going to form a company and you're thinking about all the different ways that you can support an employee, benefits, compensation, making sure you have a strong diversity and inclusion policy, in addition to that, mental health needs to be part and parcel of like the founding documents of any organization and they need to live by that as well and then the second thing is and this is probably more of a public policy um question slash solution but kind of what i alluded to earlier about this 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 need for people to take time you know so much of my story has been going through mental health experiences and mental health challenges that have been exacerbated by the fact that I have not been able to take time to heal. And so since the age of 15, I have been just pushed and pushed 
and push through a system, right? Diagnosed with Crohn's disease, well, you can't miss school. Having mental health challenges, well, it's probably not that bad if you're still showing up to school. And so you learn, and I had to learn at an early age, that what you do to get by in the system is you have to just go along with it. And there was no pause button that was proactively offered to me that said, hey, Johnny, you know, you could take six months off school and you can either do homeschooling or you can literally take a year off, but you need to focus on, on healing, healing your gut, healing your mind. And I think that same concept can also be applied to the work environment. Like I said, I had a full-blown mental health crisis where clinically I was on the verge of being institutionalized, but I felt this huge societal pressure to still show up to work and to just keep going through the motions because God forbid I lost my first job. Well, then what, what was I going to do? God forbid if I took a year off when I was 22 years old and I had my first job, what would have happened? What would have happened if I took a year off and then I tried getting a new job and I saw a gap in my resume? Would I be able to tell that employer, honestly, that I took it because I had a mental health crisis? Would they hire me after hearing that I had a mental health crisis? All of those things were at play. And I think if we can create a society where we just give people the opportunity, whether it's six months or a year or however long it takes for them to heal their bodies and for them to heal their minds, well, then we'll be in a position where a lot more people are living up to their God-given potential. And that also benefits this economy that we live and work in. People who are operating at their optimal health, people who are operating from a place of vitality, people who feel like they're thriving versus surviving, those people contribute so much more to our work environment when they're coming from a place of strength than from a place of hiding a disability or surviving a disability. And so I think we need to think really critically about how we're building mental health infrastructure that supports that kind of work. And that, that first component that you mentioned, the organization offering resources and support, uh, you mentioned at the start of the podcast that you didn't really consider that during your first job search. What, what kind of questions are you asking in interviews now? And what are you what are you kind of asking coworkers or people at the companies that you're interviewing at? How can you make sure it's not just on paper that companies yeah. are inclusive and welcoming? Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the things that I do now in a way that I probably didn't prioritize enough before is taking a look just at first blush at what are the value statements of this organization, right? And do they talk about mental health at all? And one of the things that I have found in the last five years and in, in taking that step is a lot of organizations still are not specifically talking about mental health. Um, they'll talk about being an equal opportunity employer, not discriminating against someone's health in abstract. But what does that literally mean as it relates to mental health, right? And so every so often, now, it, it's more of an exception than a rule. You will see someone or an organization speak to being a mentally, you know, a, a mentally health-centric company. And that's great. And that's wonderful. But I think, like I've learned from my first experience, you even got to go beyond that, right? Because there's what, you know, kind of the painting is on the wall on the exterior, but you also have to get a sense of, are they living by these values? 
are they are they actually implementing these values? And so, you know, I haven't had an experience recently with an interview process, but one of the things I would ask is what is uh, the corporate culture um, at this organization like as it relates to health and wellness and specifically mental health and really getting a sense and asking that question from the interviewer, is this real? Do they have a good answer there? Is this something that they have thought about intentionally? And tackling this challenge of mental health in the workplace, we've talked about big level public policy on leave. We've talked about what the organization can do as far as benefits, but what's something you can do just as a coworker, you know, if you notice somebody that's at the the bottom level of the ladder with you, how can you support them? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, Olivia, because I think at the end of the day, you can only regulate so much by way of policy and procedures and HR books. And at the end of the day, really what you need is a group of people that understand at an intuitive level what it means to be a supportive human being of another human being, right? People who intuitively get mental health, people who intuitively know how to look out for someone who might be struggling with their mental health and maybe not ready to self-disclose. And I think really, you know, coworkers, right? And the culture you create amongst each other, they're a huge part of someone's experience in, in, in a workplace. You could be in a workplace that has the best mental health policy in the world, but if they're, if they're, if your coworkers don't buy into it, if your coworkers don't get it, well, then it's not, it's not really going to matter what that policy says, and the, and it's vice versa, right, Olivia? So it's like you could you could go into an environment, into an organization, doesn't have the statement of values, doesn't have the policy, but you could really have a kick but group of people who just intuitively understand what it's like to be supportive of one another's mental health. And you could have a much better experience. Now that does not mean to forgo the public health changes. They are critical, but it just, I think kind of helps uh, illuminate, you know, how important having coworkers who are supportive, who are willing to reach out, who kind of have a high emotional IQ so that they can see if someone you know, is presenting anxious or someone is presenting depressed or someone is presenting overwhelmed, um, being able to approach that person in a way that is supportive, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, calling someone out or proactively asking someone like, hey, I, I noticed you're anxious. Do you have an anxiety disorder? It just means understanding kind of intuitively that someone might be struggling with something and, kind of recalibrating your approach accordingly, being supportive, being, um, you know, being instinctually nice to someone and understanding. And I mean, that honestly, Olivia, that should probably be the rule of thumb, <laughs> regardless if someone's struggling with mental health or not, but that it just becomes even more important to do so. And let's say somebody listening to this right now saw the podcast title, saw the topic and said, that's what I need to hear. I'm, I'm really in a place where I'm struggling at work. Yeah. What is one key thing you want them to take away? One simple thing they can take with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first thing is, and this might sound cliche, but it's critical. Do not blame yourself. Uh, it is not your fault for struggling in the work environment. You deserve to be in a work environment that supports you. The second thing is, be courageous 
and don't be afraid to self-advocate for yourself, even if it doesn't go well. Um, one of the things that I am immensely proud of myself for, even though my first experience did not work out in the workplace, is I did eventually self-disclose um, both to my supervisor and to the HR representative of that organization. Now, they didn't handle it well, um, and that hurt at the time, but I am immensely proud of myself for having the courage to do that. And I think the more we do that, and the more we go through the process of self-disclosing, and we go through the process of opening up, we can all be ripples of change, right? That are giving voice to our experiences and being countercultural in that way. And, and going in from a place of, place of strength and saying, I have a mental health condition and there's nothing wrong with me for having that. And I just, I'm going to need a little more support. So, you know, one, please do not blame yourself. And two, being uh, comfortable with, with self-advocating and taking that step and knowing even if it doesn't go well, it's not your fault. You're just a part of a greater mental health movement that is gonna make someone else's life easier one day for them to self-disclose and ask for the things that they that they deserve as a human being. I think that's that's really powerful to take away from this. And lastly, Johnny, you know your story the best. You know your experience. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to touch on here? Yeah. Um, I think I think this piece of mental health is is so critical. Um, the conversation in the last decade, Olivia, has has grown immensely. It's changed immensely, all for the better. Right? Finally, we can talk about mental health, and it. I, I feel like it really started. You know, the epicenter of it was you know self disclosure to friends and family and learning how to relate to to the people we care about in a better way. But this component of the mental health conversation as it relates to how we exist in the workplace, it's just at the forefront. So it's, it's such an exciting conversation. It's such an important conversation. And so the more we can have it, you know, whether it's on podcasts like this, whether it's doing lunch and learns, you know, at the workplace to talk about the concept of mental health, I think we need to just keep pushing it. And even in, in, in recent history, in current events, you know, I think about someone like Simone Biles, and, and what that meant um, to the world, um, that someone performing at the highest level, you know, that is her job. And she defiantly said, I need to do something in support of my mental health, regardless of the expectations, regardless of corporate sponsorships, regardless of external pressures, I'm doing that for me. Um, now that was in the realm of sports, but I, I think there is, there's a correlation there that's extremely important. And I think the more we do that, um, the more we, you know, kind of latch on um, to those experiences and demonstrate, you know, by our will and our courage that we can assert our autonomy as it relates to our mental health in the workplace, the more we can make uh, a, a pretty big impact in, in our society and, and in the world. And Johnny, that's a, a great point to close on the role that the individual can have in this mental health movement in the workplace. And so I just want to say thank you for sharing your story with DBSA. Yeah. And I'm sure it's been really insightful for a lot of people. 
for sure. And thank you, Olivia. This was a fun conversation and I look forward to many, many more. Thank you for listening to the DBSA podcast series. Remember to rate and review the series on your favorite podcast app. If you want to support more shows like this one, you can make a gift today by going to dbsalliance.org slash donate. Thank you.